I agree with you completely about the uh, special effects. That really was one of the better things about the movie was that the special effects in terms of the genie were fantastic. And, you know, given that that's one of the reasons we go to see movies is to be dazzled. Some of that was dazzling, but not enough to, you can't just rely on the looks of things. Hello and welcome to At The Movies with Mike and Marie, a show where two film professors talk about movies. I'm Marie Westhaver. And I'm Mike Giuliano. And today we're going to talk about 3,000 Years of Longing and Breaking, starting off with 3,000 Years of Longing, a story where Tilda Swinton buys a glass bottle and to her surprise, a genie comes out in the person of Idris Elba. And it is a bedtime story for adults. But Mike, I basically thought this was Aladdin for boomers. What did you think? I had very mixed feelings about this film. So let me start to elaborate on the mixed feelings. If you think about the very nature of the story, it's one of the oldest stories ever. Think about the Arabian Nights, Thousand and One Nights. Think about Scheherazade. She had the, uh, the misfortune in many ways of being the, the new bride of a Persian king who had the rather nasty habit of killing his wives in the morning. And she decided the best survival tactic would be she would start to tell him a story and then as dawn was breaking, she'd almost be to the conclusion of the story. And he'd say, he'd say, well, well, how does it end? How's it end? And she'd say, well, you know, the dawn is here. I can't finish it right. You know, I'll tell you the rest of it tomorrow night. And what invariably would happen would be either a story was not completed and then had to be completed the next night, or she would tell the story and the king would say, what a great story. Just say, oh, we think that one's good. I've got an even better one for you. But anyway, for her, storytelling, the very nature of narrative was, you know, a definitional thing in terms of survival. We narrate our lives, we tell our stories, all that. And so, so many generations of writers and just of people have been enamored of that notion. I think one of my own writing teachers, John Barth, you know, wrote a, a book along those lines in terms of how, you know, really in many ways, Scheherazade's the prototypical storyteller. I mean, that was the gist of it. So why do I share that? Well, think about that as a venerable story that we're still retelling in many ways. And this film also in its own way retells the story. However, and this is already where I get into my mixed feelings. However, in the case of Scheherazade, her life literally depends on it. There's, there's a lot hanging on that. And even though the stories can be very funny and engaging and this and that, there's always that, that serious trait that, you know, she's got to do this. This film is not quite the same and to its detriment in some ways. The Tilda Swinton character is an academic, British academic, and she goes to Turkey on this trip. And as Marie says, she buys the bottle and lo and behold, there's the genie in her hotel room. The thing is, She's a professor of, of what's described in the film as a narratology, which is not usually a designation I would use, but essentially she is an expert on storytelling, the very things I'm starting to talk about. There's not quite as much hanging in the balance for her. It seems to me that, you know, her own life is she's divorced. Uh, she's living comfortably on her own. Uh, she doesn't typically look for a new mate. You know, she seems just fine with herself and her professional circle and so on. And of course, all that's going to change with the appearance of the genie. And so my first reservation is simply that there's not that much hanging in the balance for her. I mean, you know, conceivably, without spoiling anything, conceivably her life could become better because of the genie's appearance. After all, you do get three wishes and, you know, there are ways in which it might improve. But it seems slighter in that respect. And let me very quickly state my major reservation about the film. Uh, first of all, on an up note, a positive note. Tilda Swinton and Idris Elba work together extremely well. It's a very nice pairing of actors. 
I break the film up into three parts, and here's my reservation about it. The first part is the 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 meet cute, if you will, the getting to know you. It's an eye opener, isn't it? Uh, you know, even though you sort of know it's going to come, it when it when it actually gets there, it's like whoa, you know, there's a genie in my room. <laughs> and so anyway, a lot of that has comic value. A lot of that's really funny, and it's just engaging to see that. And of course, with some of the the CGI in terms of the shape that the genie takes and some of those effects, I mean, that really is quite engaging. That's the first third of the film, very engaging. The third third of the film is, and without spoiling anything, the point at which the academic and the genie will really get to know each other much better. It's, it's more at that interpersonal level. And some of that is actually quite touching. It's really quite beautifully, you know, aside from the visuals of the film, which are striking throughout on an emotional level, that third third works well. So here's the math for me. The first third works really well. The third third works really well. How about the middle third? Well, on the one hand, there are really striking, uh, you know, special effects, and it's always visually pleasing to the eye and so on. What happens in that middle third? Well, in the middle third, this genie has been around for a long time, has a lot of stories to tell. And indeed, the older stories go all the way back to King Solomon, the Queen of Sheba, Solomon the Magnificent, and so on. So we all have an historical interest in, and, and a narrative interest in that kind of thing. Here's the problem for me. As he starts to tell the stories, the film itself has what I call a floating quality. One story sort of floats into the next. And the major problem in this respect is, since he's narrating these stories, he oftentimes will provide the narrative voice of or a synopsis of what the characters would be saying. Uh, and what happens there is that the historical characters or mythic characters who are brought to life in the stories never are fully brought alive. It's like storybook material where you, you see stories playing out. You know, They're not three-dimensional characters in any sense. And for me, it was never boring, but I felt like it was basically coasting. And, and this amounts to like basically a third of the film, you know, do the math on that. And for me, that's where I started to react in a sort of so-so way to the film overall. I was not as emotionally engaged as I thought I would be. So there's a lot more to say about that. But for the moment, let me just say that's the major reason why I had a kind of mixed reaction and frankly, a sort of so-so reaction to the film overall. How about you, Marie? You know, Mike, I agree with everything you said. I mean, you summed it up perfectly. There is a hole in the middle of the story where you're just sort of waiting for it to resolve itself so you can find out what happens. I thought it dragged there too and kind of lost the audience because I don't think, because this is meant for adults, that it was entertaining. And given that Tilda Swinton's character is supposed to be someone who studies stories, I expected a better story. And you make great points about Scheherazade and the, you know, sort of the ancient tradition of storytelling. And you have to be, it has to be a grabber. It's got to keep you the entire time on the edge of your seat. I agree. The beginning was good and the ending worked, but the middle just sagged. What I thought was very witty was Tilda Swinton's character's cynicism about the whole three wishes thing. And it comes up over and over again. And it was a really nice touchstone because it reminded you that this really was meant for adults. This was not just cynical, but practical. And she kept reminding Idris Elba, the genie, that people who make the wishes always come to a bad end. It sounds like a great thing. Oh, you get three wishes. But it never works out for the people in the stories. And of course, she's story bound. He does not give examples of people who made three wishes that goes against what she just said. So he's sort of in a box of having to sell something that everybody knows is not going to be as advertised. So I thought that was a really interesting setup because it provided for a touchstone to keep coming back to that 
remained funny throughout the movie. But I thought it was darker and sadder than I expected the story to be, given that it was a fairy tale, albeit for adults. What did you think, Mike, of the tone? Well, to pick up on your first point, I agree so strongly with you about the character played by Tilda Swinton. First of all, I mean, you and I both really love her as an actress. You know, I'll watch her in anything and she's always delivering the goods. You know what I mean? She's a reliable actor that way. So no problems whatsoever there. Likewise, Idris Elbows to said, you know, they work together well. Her character's name is Aletheia, which is derived from the Greek meaning truth. And the reason I share that is this is a smart actor playing smart character and doing a really good job. of, And there's a kind of cynicism she has. She has a sort of scholarly cynicism. She knows the material well. And so when she says, you know, when the genie whose job it is to, to say this says, you get three wishes, she immediately has the comeback of, oh no, if anyone who gets three wishes, it's not gonna turn out well. And I agree with you, Marie, it would be nice to see some like illustration of that, like almost like, where's the footnote? Where, where's the example? It would be amusing potentially or, or heartbreaking, whatever, it's just to see that, how it played out not so well for somebody. But what I did enjoy actually in much of the film was exactly what you identified. The fact that she's offered the three wishes, she doesn't want them. He's laying out the ground rules. You can't wish for more wishes kind of, kind of ground rules and so on. And that's sort of engaging too, like, okay, what are the rules of the game here? But that only goes so far, really, because at some point you need to have further development of character and story and so on. And it seems to me that at a narrative level, the story is stalling. And perhaps even before it gets to that middle portion with all the stories he's telling, it just seems to me that it kind of sets up a set of expectations or rules, and then it just sort of stays there and, and bounces around with that. But let me segue from that actually to what is another major reservation about the film. There are places where I would expect it to be funnier than it is. Uh, I know what you're getting at, Marie, like it is storybook material, fairy tale. It's not always as, as amusing as it might be there. In terms of the darker edge it has, that's potentially quite interesting. I don't think it fully follows through on that, but just simply the fact that there's the deepening of the relationship between the, the jinn, the, the genie, and the academic. And some of those are the, the scenes, the moments when the film does work well, actually, because, you know, she's had a successful life and she's convinced that she can just live on her own and doesn't need another mate and so on. But there is a certain melancholy there. But, you know, where the film's kind of at odds with itself is, you know, when you see her back at home in the UK, you know, academics can do fairly well, but she's living in an almost palatial, I don't I shouldn't say palatial setting, but she's living like extremely comfortably and even there, it seemed to me that the film's production design perhaps jumped ahead of where she would have been. How do you feel about that point? Because, you know, as I'm watching those scenes, I'm thinking, well, is she a best-selling author or what? You know what I mean? It just seems like she's living in really swank quarters. And then, so it seems kind of overstated in terms, and that's, again, where special effects probably should go over the top here, but just the basic production design, I think, pushes it too far by way of opulence for her. Related to that is the film does have that kind of uh, overstatement quality, for instance. And this, although this will seem like a minor aspect of the film, it points to some of the larger problems. When she's back home in the UK, she has some next door neighbors who are very provincial Brits, to put it that way, that, you know, in terms of the biases and this and that, and how they feel about people of other races and backgrounds. And okay, there's enough validity, certainly, to, to that kind of reaction that the characters might have. But it becomes almost cartoonish at that point, the way the next door neighbors express their intolerance and so on. And that's, that's a delicate point. The film sometimes is dark in a subtle and, and emotionally moving way. But then when you get those next door neighbors, it's just sort of like live action cartoon practically. And so when you talk about tone, Marie, it's not just that it takes a darker turn than we might expect, but it just seems kind of wobbly 
period in, in terms of tone as to what it should be and where it goes. And if you have the kind of like really silly, almost cartoonish stuff, it's kind of hard to segue from that back to a more emotionally wrenching, really, really you know, heartbreaking thing in terms of where she is in her life. How do you feel about that? Because I thought the film was kind of insecure with its own sense of tone. So not just darker, but just kind of uh, unsure sometimes of, well, what should the next scene be? What do you think? I think that is right on the money. I like the way you said that it was insecure about what kind of stance it wanted to make. And I get that, you know, you bring a genie home and how do you explain it to the neighbors? But we've seen this before. We've seen I Dream of Genie. We've seen Bewitched. We've seen the supernaturally gifted character misunderstood by the neighbors. You know, you think about the neighbors next door to Bewitched that they were always spying on them, trying to, the wife was always telling her husband, you can't believe what she just did. So I get that you would put that in there, but it seemed hackneyed and sitcomish. It could have been left out entirely because it didn't really move the needle in the story at all. I wanted to mention also, I agree with you completely about the uh, special effects. That really was one of the better things about the movie was that the special effects in terms of the genie were fantastic. And, you know, given that that's one of the reasons we go to see movies is to be dazzled. Some of that was dazzling, but not enough to, you can't just rely on the looks of things. I also thought there was a missed opportunity to show things we have seen from like I Dream of Jeannie, where when they showed her in the bottle, it was huge. The bottle was huge because she got real small when she was inside the bottle. And they don't really give you any insight into what it's like to be a genie, which I think was sort of a missed opportunity because how many movies are you going to be able to make on this topic? I think they missed a trick there. What do you think? Yeah, I wanted to know a little bit more about what you're calling sort of the inside story or inside the bottle story. Those are narrative opportunities, aren't they? If you find yourself in this really bizarre situation, logically follow through with it. I mean, in terms of, you know, what is it? And I never, even though the genie was explaining his history and the rules of the game, I never felt like I was completely confident as in, well, exactly what is your status? What sort of being are you? It, it's, it often seems kind of squishy to me. And, and so I share your feeling completely there. And maybe this is an example. Let me actually go out on a limb here. The director of the film might surprise you when you hear his name. It's George Miller, who's best known for the Mad Max franchise. And, and in fact, his most recent film at this point is not so recent, Mad Max Fury Road, which I love, uh, you know, great action picture. That came out in 2015, you know, and this is his first feature. He's done other feature films that are not in that genre. So I don't want to box him in necessarily, but it just seems to me with this story, he doesn't have like a complete handle on it. Everything Marie was saying earlier about, and she and I talked back and forth about that kind of insecurity or a wobbly tone or however you want to put that. It just seems to me that he's not completely in control here. And I think what happens is that as so often happens in filmmaking, the special effects sort of get out of control. You know, once you hit that digital button, I'll put it that way, what's the inclination? Well, to do more, right? You know, you have a really neat effect. Well, let's do more. And that's, as we said earlier, why that middle portion of the film suffers. But then they're not always entirely sure what to do with some of the other story elements. So the, the film, I think, sort of falls apart at that level. And it's a shame because George Miller is a gifted filmmaker. Individual sequences in this film work extremely well but it doesn't quite cohere. It doesn't quite coalesce. And incidentally, he co-wrote it with his daughter. So this very, it was a, this is a personal project that, that obviously for years he worked on. It's not something he just took on as a commission or a quick job or something. So he really cared about the material, but I think somehow didn't fully come to terms with it. Marie, is that, what's your sense of this? Because it just seems to me like a, frankly, a missed opportunity. 
Yeah, I agree, especially since I think there was some anticipation with that director that it would be handled in a way familiar from his other movies. And the trailer, too, gave you a different feeling of, oh, Idris Elba's a genie and now he's in your house. I think uh, it doesn't really deliver that the way I thought it would. I didn't think it was a bad movie, but I thought it was a very uneven movie. And also, I had more of an expectation of more wit from the genie. And that's just because of having seen Robin Williams chew up the scenery and uh, as the animated Aladdin. And then, of course, Will Smith, who got all the best lines in the remake of Aladdin. I guess I just figured a being that had been around that long wouldn't be quite so world weary and would be a little more fun. Well, I know what you're saying, but if I had been bottled up like that for so many hundreds of years, I don't know how much fun I would have left in me. But again, that's an instance of sort of like metaphysical concerns, like, well, what should this being be? And in any event, whichever direction it took or could take potentially, comic, dramatic, I don't think it really pushed far enough in any one direction that way. Marie, that's why then, you know, even when it turns more towards a romantic friendship or deepened friendship, I still felt like the groundwork hadn't been sufficiently put down for that. Do you know what I mean? So even though some of those later scenes are quite moving, actually, I still never fully felt invested in it that way because I had all those reservations along the way. And so by the time you get into the the third third of the film, yeah, it's it's actually quite moving, but not as overwhelmingly moving as, as it should be. Did you feel sort of let down that way that you were being moved by, but you thought there should be even more here? Absolutely. And I I guess I wanted an ending a little more like The Shape of Water, where, you know, you have the human person and the supernatural being and more of a happily ever after, more like a fairy tale story. This just seemed like it wasn't really a classic fairy tale. And yet it was selling itself as a fairy tale. So it kind of sets you up for it not delivering what you thought it was going to be. Who do you think this movie was for, Mike? That's an interesting point to make. It really, I mean, it's a, as you said earlier, it's essentially a fairy tale for adults. There's no reason why a, a younger viewer, you know, a, a child viewer couldn't really enjoy a lot of this, but the more melancholic or darker aspects of the story, I think, appeal more to adults or, or you know, honestly, like mature adults, as in she is divorced. She's had some life behind her. Where is she in, in middle age, if you will, when this middle-aged British woman meets a very old genie? So the age difference that way. But it seems to me the thoughts prompted there are ones probably that an older adult audience or in any event, an adult audience would appreciate more. But, you know, the reason I'm waffling on, on that point is simply that, you know, tell a story about a genie in a bottle and, and that, that's for all ages, right? We can all enjoy that. And then to the point we've been making throughout the show, the special effects really are nifty in places and just it's just visually engaging. So I would think that would hold almost any viewer's attention. But in terms of a deeper response to it, even though it's disappointing on that level, it seems to me it's more an adult audience that would respond to it. And, and the film really has, it has not been marketed like to kids, particularly. My sense of what I call the ad campaign or the marketing is that it really is looking more at an adult audience. And after all, by way of actors, who would want to go see like, you know, Tilda Swinton, Idris Elba, I mean, that's essentially, you know, pitched at, you know, adult audiences, isn't it? I mean, that's really, the, that's really the crowd they're going for. You know, Idris Elba also has another movie out called Beast, which is, I'm not sure what to say about that movie other than he's probably the best thing in it. And um... <laughs> <laughs> Talk about a backhanded compliment, Marie. <laughs> I really like him. I just, I wonder at these two choices. I mean, Certainly, if I was a Elba, I would jump at the chance to be in a movie with Tilda Swinton. And I agree with you that the two of them together, great chemistry. And that might have been the draw 
but both scripts, I just can, I'm trying to imagine them on paper and thinking, yeah, I want to do that role, unless you're just really trying to try things. You know, I'm glad he took the role, you know, I mean, to work with Tilda Swinton, it's an intriguing project. We're talking after the fact, right? But before right. the fact, you can certainly readily understand why he'd want to sign. And he's very good in it. Right. Plus, he, he probably wanted to work with that director as well. Sure. Well, that brings us to our second movie, which is called Breaking. And I'm just going to take issue with the, with the title from the get go, because it's a terrible title. But it's only slightly better than the original title, which was 892. Now, I saw this during Sundance. And I was very excited to see it because it has people in it I really like. It's the last film of Michael Kenneth Williams. It's got John Boyega in it. It's got Salinas Leva in it. So I was very excited to see it. Plus, you know, I, I love movies that are about bank robberies. It's just to me, I'm, I'm always game for, you know, how are they going to get away with it? It's going to be like Dog Day Afternoon. How are they going to handle the narrative? And it's based on a true story that happened in Georgia in 2017, where a veteran held up a bank, not because he wanted the bank to give him their money. He wanted to force the VA to give him what was rightfully his. And so that's the setup. The delivery, though, this poor movie, because it gives away the game early on. And then there is absolutely no suspense, even though the acting in it is spectacular. The forward movement, it just gets bogged down early on and then never recovers. What did you think, Mike? Maria, I agree with you on that. It's, you know, based on an actual story and, and the story itself is compelling. So that sort of stays with you. But so much of that is, as you say, kind of given away early in the game. And then it's just sort of going through the machinations of, you know, what are the consequences of this? So it's a film worth seeing, but ultimately, you know, not, not a particularly uh, notable film. What I made note of, and I'm always looking for what I call provincial notes, local notes, points of pride. This is a film actually that is co-written by Kwame Kwai Arma. I had met him back when he was the artistic director at Baltimore Center Stage. And I knew his work as a playwright and as an artistic director and knew him a little bit, but, but you know, he was in Baltimore until fairly recently. Why do I mention that beyond local pride that, that you know, someone with a, a local connection uh, helped to write the film? The reason in particular I mentioned it is in his work as a playwright and as an artistic director, he's keenly aware of social justice issues. So in this film, you know, you have this vet who who's, feels he's been denied by the bureaucracy. And he's not, as Marie says, he's not out to rob a bank. He's not out to get money that way. He wants to call attention to how he's been done in injustice. And as that plays out, it oftentimes is, you know, quite involving in that, you know, the police negotiator played by Michael K. Williams is really good in his final performance. As they talk back and forth, those scenes work really well, actually. And so that pulls me in. The additional reason I mentioned the screenwriter's contribution is that because he's so interested in social justice issues, the fact that one of those that plays out in the film is the increasing militarization of the police force. And, you know, this is an issue, as we know, just from so many stories in recent years, a, a response that might be an over-response, right? Overkill, quite literally. When you see that play out in the film, that's actually brutally effective at times as to, you know, the uh, Michael K. Williams character wants to talk, wants to try to get this resolved. But other people on the team are not all playing along. They've got their own agendas and they are eager to send in the heavy weapons and, and all that. And not to spoil the story, but it is based on an actual story that doesn't turn out very well. I'll just leave it at that. 
And some of those things got me thinking, not that it was that it was a, a particularly strong film, but they got me thinking about the issues raised by the film. So that's a positive thing. So on balance, as Marie and I've been saying, I, I think the film has certainly worthwhile elements in it. But Marie, I think, identified the fact that it sort of gives away so much so soon that you're just sort of not quite marking time, but it, it just becomes a, a procedural at that point. You know, he's in the room with hostages. What do they do next? That kind of brinksmanship back and forth, which always held my interest. But I just felt that, you know, the something more that's not there is for them to add, not, not for me. And, and the movie takes sort of sentimental turns in terms of, you know, his wife back home and all that. And, and that's, you know, it does hit the heart. But some of that just seems like it's too quickly hitting that button for like, you know, sentimental scene. And so that's where it differs from what I would consider a classic of the genre, you know, Sidney Lumet's Dog Day Afternoon from 1975. When I teach a course on Hollywood in the 70s, I use that film. So watching it again, it holds up really well. I mean, it's really terrific because mention an issue, mention a character, mention an attitude. It's all tossed into that film. There's a lot percolating. And so it always keeps you vigorously engaged because it is, I mean, it's amusing and it's appalling and it's everything else all at once. You know what I mean? It's a really, really strong film in terms of how much gets tossed into it. This film I thought needed a bit more by way of either background on the character. We really don't know much about his military career and what happened. You know, Marie, pick up on this because it seems to me we're told just enough that you want to know a little bit more. Yeah, I agree completely. And I think it would have, served the movie better if they had shown him in Iraq and then coming back and then you know hatching the plan it would have at least helped with understanding the character more but also to add some suspense and to give you a reason to want him to prevail in the end one thing that did not work for me was the way and this is of course the nature of robbing a bank and taking hostages I absolutely love Selena Slava she was in um Maria Full of Grace, and she was in Orange is the New Black, and she plays a character who who just freezes. You know, there's opportunities where she could make a run for it, but she just remains frozen, which is exactly how people act in real life. So I thought that was a great thing to actually depict. The problem is that you feel for her, and it makes what he's doing just completely unacceptable. So Wally, you want the VA to do right by the man, but at the same time, the way he's going about it is hurting people needlessly. And that kind of ruins his character for the viewer, I think. What do you think, Mike? That is such an important point you're making. The fact that, of course, we sympathize with him. We identify this, this man. He's so desperate. Here's what he does, right? But as he starts to do that, when you think about what I'll call collateral damage, you know, in terms of what his agenda is, what his purpose is, you can really, you know, feel sorry for him and want him to somehow succeed in getting his message out. But look at the damage that he does. I mean, it's just, you know, those terrified hostages, the police response, his own family, I mean, putting them through. I start to lose sympathy. And I'm just thinking, I know I feel sorry for this guy, but my goodness, look what he has embarked upon. And Marie, pick up on this again, because that's where I think the film really doesn't entirely fall apart, but I just feel like even though I know I should feel sorry for him, scene by scene, I'm feeling like less sorry. Like what, what a horrible mess this has become. That and the fact that it really, it doesn't even work because he wants to raise awareness of, you know, the deplorable conditions at the VA and how hard it is for veterans to get their benefits and whatnot. But this happened in 2017. And, you know, we're not talking about that incident at all. Everybody went on and forgot about it. So it didn't even work. So that's, you know, it's, it's even sadder for that reason. All that risk and mayhem for nothing. But that does bring us to the end of this episode. 
Don't forget to check out our other podcasts at dragondigitalradio.podbean.com and also on Spotify and Pandora under Dragon Digital Radio. And we'll see you next time at the movies. See you then. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.